Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump, the weekly show in which we talk with people who have had a spiritual awakening. My name is Rick Archer, and my guest this time is Michael Baxter, whom we will also refer to as Bax or Michael, but not Mike. Michael is unique among my guests so far for several reasons, one of which is that he doesn't really claim to have had a spiritual awakening. He, he says he's had some glimpses, and he, I think he, he's going to be able to talk about them very eloquently, uh, but maybe they're not stabilized. But that's okay, because the reason I want him to have Mike on, Michael, on is that I consider him to be something of a, an Advaita scholar. If you know what Advaita means, it means non-duality. And um, there's a whole school of thought which deals with that topic. And, and Michael is very eloquent on that point, writing things, prose, poetry, composing songs, which one of which he might sing for us tonight, all sorts of things. So I felt that this might be a very interesting discussion. It might be a little bit more systematic than some of uh, the interviews we've done so far, which have been just kind of free-flowing, spontaneous, extemporaneous, because uh, Michael has developed some fairly detailed points, and he's so accustomed to talking about this stuff that he has a, a fairly clear structure in mind of how he'd like to lay it out. At the same time, it won't be a lecture. We'll have plenty of give and take and questions and answers and, and so on to make it lively for you. What we often do on this show is have people start by just sort of giving a little bit of a biographical sketch of themselves, you know, what, okay. what their background is, their just personal details of their life that they consider relevant, um, how that pertains to spirituality or, you know, consciousness awakening and so on. So All right. go for it. All right. Um, <clears throat> well, a little bit of background. Mm -hmm. I was born in Seattle. I was raised on the West Coast. And, of course, I came to Fairfield with everybody else in the late 70s mm -hmm. and uh, was here for quite a while. I was, uh, I was an administrator at MIU, or MUM now. Marshall uh, University of Management yeah. yeah, in Fairfield, Iowa. And I was uh, a student and uh, also a, a businessman in town here. Mm -hmm. But for the last, uh, let's say, 12 years, I've been living in Coralville, Iowa with my wife, who's a wonderful Arabic lady named Intasar. She's also a blind lady, and um, she's, you know, she's wonderful. Mm -hmm. uh, I always... You mentioned that she's from Baghdad. Yeah, and, she's... And that she's into yeah. belly dancing, so... <laughs> right, right. <laughs> she is a blind belly dancer from Baghdad. Right. Actually, her blood is Palestinian, but uh -huh. she, and she was raised in Baghdad. Uh -huh. She moved here when she was uh, 17, I think, to... Um, have her eyes checked out, but there's not much they could do. It's, it's a progressive loss of vision. Uh -huh. I always think of myself as having really just three interests in, in life. She's the first one, mm -hmm. and I love her with all my heart. And the second one is this sort of self-discovery. And the third one is music. I, I love to sing. Well, I should say I love to sing along. So if there's time at the end today, maybe sing sure. one song had some health issues and that, that actually has some relevance or significance with regard to your spiritual development. I mean, you've been a meditator for decades, right? You learned to meditate when you were probably a teenager or 20s or something like that. And then at a certain stage you got leukemia? Right. That's right. I got uh, myelogenous leukemia, which is, means it's in the bone marrow. Oh. And that was in 94 that that was diagnosed. Mm -hmm. 
that point they gave me uh, three to five years to live mm -hmm. and there was no real cure. Mm -hmm. But I, I took chemo shots every day for 10 years. Mm -hmm. So I, I lasted quite well with those. And then they, they came up, they discovered a, a wonder drug, you know, just almost a poster child for wonder drugs. Mm -hmm. It's uh, four little pills that I take every day now and uh, technically chemo, but the side effects are not bad. Basically, I'm just tired. Mm -hmm. I get cranky in the evening, so if I bite your head <laughs> off, Rick. I'll, I'll ask very yeah, non-probing. Yeah, be very I, careful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting thing. I wouldn't say that getting sick made me think about mortality and so much as, as I would think that, you know, I was actually starting to wake up. Mm -hmm. And as we know from you know, Maharishi's teachings, uh, the TM teaching, the mind likes to be able to match a reason to an experience. Right. And so, uh, given that I, I was sort of awakening and still am awakening, you know, it was just kind of a nice match that I should have some kind of serious illness. Hmm. But yet, I don't think one really caused the other. One thing Marcio has said, which some people found discouraging, was that in order to really be enlightened or whatever term we want to use, the nervous system has to be functioning perfectly or free right. of stress. And yet there are so many examples which belie that. I mean, right. so many people who have been alcoholics and then have had this profound awakening or yeah. drug addicts or... Uh, I'm going to try that next, okay, alcoholism. <laughs> <laughs> or have had some serious disease yeah. and have been awakened in spite of it. You know, both ancient and modern, there are examples of that. Mm -hmm. So did you feel that your, your disease, your illness, and the drugs you had to take were in any way an impediment to no. inner development? And, uh, you know, I'm sort of saving that part of what I want to say for a little bit later, mm -hmm. but, but in general, um, I don't think there's any connection whatsoever between, you know, a fact and fiction, between that which is real and that which is the maya or illusion. Mm -hmm. um, and, and if anything, the illusion would have to be downstream from the truth. And so there's no way that it could flow back upstream and, and affect, you know, no condition of the fiction could ever restrict or affect the fact. That would be my mm -hmm. take on that. Yeah. Like uh, many spiritual authorities and books, you can take any one thing Maharshi said and find something pretty much the opposite yeah. that he also said. And I, and I remember him <coughs> saying that, uh, you know, you could actually transcend or, you know, take, take any of the five senses and yeah. arrive at the being or the self or whatever. And presumably through having that experience repeatedly, have that become a stable and permanent reality, even though you might be very handicapped in certain respects, and obviously you're not. I think that's that's right. So how would you like to lay this out? Okay. I mean, you have a whole structure yes, here. Logic. I, uh, I don't want to interfere with it by jumping ahead or anything. Well, please uh, interrupt me enough to keep this from being pedantic. But yeah, I, yeah. Um, out of necessity, I have created a system, um, the graphic and you know, text, words, mm -hmm. ideas, and pictures, okay. which I did over the years to help me understand what's been happening to me. Good. And I'm glad you phrased it that way because I... You know, I do want to uh, put this in terms of your personal experience and not yeah. just sort of an abstract cosmology that you've developed, right. but how does this relate to you? How did you come up with this stuff? That's you know? right. Yeah. I'm not claiming that this, this is truth. You know, I, right. I don't think there is such a thing as the relative. It, it works. So I'll, I'll show you what I have here. Good. 
I'm going to show this diagram here. I call this the cycle of self-knowledge. You'll probably right away see that there's this big sort of egg-shaped cycle, and underneath that there's a very dark triangle. In this um, schematic, the dark triangle is the self, the egg-shaped cycle is uh, the relative world. Mm -hmm. The idea being that we move through different milestone experiences uh, in the relative world, uh, sometimes passing quite close to the self mm -hmm. and sometimes not so close. Mm -hmm. And uh, I found in my case that just trying to populate this map with some of my experiences has helped me to put them in the context, put them in a common context, you could mm -hmm. say. May I interject a question yeah. here? I think some teachers would say, how can you not be close to the self? You know, what, yeah. what can take you away or, or at any, to any distance well, from that which is yes. everywhere? Well, this is actually, uh, you're bringing out really one of my personal favorite points, but... Uh -huh. Are uh, we getting ahead of ourselves? Not, well, I'm going to, uh, uh, let me make this point, Rick, sure. but I won't uh, spend a lot of time on it. I think that really uh, different regions of this schematic require a slightly different dialect mm -hmm. or slightly different language. So obviously at the top where for now let's say that we're far away from the self, mm -hmm. uh, the reality is that people are d different. I'm not you and oh. I'm not the self. Right. But as you're moving towards the self, you know, that is called into question. You know, is there really a difference between us? Mm -hmm. As you're passing the self, um, there's really no experience of the world. So let's uh, let's define the term self a little okay, bit. Okay, good. You know, because most people, if you say, "Oh, what is yourself?" Well, I'm five. Okay. I'm five foot eight, and I weigh 140 pounds, and <laughs> I, you know, my skin color is such and such. That's my, and I go to school, and you know. So yeah. let's define what we mean by self. Okay, I'm going to cop out on that one. Here's the way I would define self. Okay. Ever since ancient times, uh, let me set this graphic down. Sure, they can show us again now. Ever since ancient times, people have said, know thyself. Right. And we've all accepted that this is a valid statement, it's a valid goal. Yeah. And so, you know, rather than try to nail it down, I would suggest that we just accept that this, whatever the self is, mm -hmm. that knowing it is a valid quest. Yeah. I think we need to make clear that when we refer to knowing it, we're alluding to something which is not commonly known. Otherwise, what's all the fuss about it? And if, if we're just going to define self in terms of our likes and our dislikes and our job and our family and our possessions and our preferences and our physical appearance, then what's to know? We all know that. You know? Let me give three synonyms for self uh -huh. that I'll propose. Truth, reality, and being. Self is defined, let's say, as that which is true. Uh, self is defined as that which is real. And being is, from the perspective of a, a living person, if he is in touch with his being, then he is in touch with his self. Good. So for now, maybe that's good enough. Yeah, so let's kind of like, at this point, establish that the self in the term that we're, in the way we're using it, refers not to maybe the common definition, but to something that is often overlooked and that yeah. that would be perhaps a more fundamental essential level of reality that is very worthy of being discovered yeah yeah okay okay good here's kind of my story then and it's also the story of what I call the three laws of self-knowledge which you'll see are something that I stumbled upon but they're also uh, for example something that Shankara from uh, was it 8th century 
India, upon which the TM tradition is based, the mm. teachings of Shankara. The chakra uh, also uh, verbalized okay. quite beautifully. So, as I said, in I guess it was about 94, I got leukemia, and by... By that time you'd already been meditating for 20 years or something? Something like that, yeah. 20, 25. Yeah. And then in 98, I had run out of options. The drug, we weren't sure if the drug was working, but the cancer was progressing. Mm. And they had proposed, I don't know if you know what a, a bone marrow transplant sure. is. It's yeah. extremely invasive. Yeah. They had said, uh, my doctors had told me that now's the time, you mm -hmm. know, I should do that. I thought about it long and hard and decided that I wouldn't do it, right. um, no matter what. Mm -hmm. I'd rather spend my time, you know, just getting ready to die. Right. And so uh, that was all in fine, and uh, as long as it was theoretical. As long as it was still at some distance. Right. I was actually a card-carrying member of two or three right-to-die societies like mm -hmm. a Hemlock Society. And, and I actually had you know, the bag that you put over your head. And ah, okay. I had the checklist, take ah. this drug and then do the bag. And Interesting. Then, you know, so I was actually going through my checklist, yeah. really trying to prepare myself to take my life before, before I couldn't take my life. Right. Things got so, so bad, I was on two chemos at that time, I was also on some kind of a, a psychological medicine that wasn't working, mm -hmm. and I had uh, just unbelievable uh, depression and anxiety symptoms. Mm -hmm. And the short story is that I became you know, acutely suicidal. Mm -hmm. I think I had about one hour left on this earth. Mm -hmm. I had full intention to just take care of things. And you probably had a fairly <clears throat> certain belief that the death of your body wasn't going to be the death of you, but, or did well, you? Well, not you really. No, no. I mean, I wasn't at peace. I wasn't uh, calm. Uh -huh. I was com just completely freaked out, but I was in such physical, emotional, psychological distress that, that I didn't feel uh, the symptoms alone were just killing me. Right. And so my best friend called out of nowhere and said, I'm getting this kind of strange feeling, what's up? And I, I said, I don't think I have an hour left. Mm -hmm. And he said, promise me you'll call your doctor and check yourself in. Mm -hmm. So I did that, uh, spent a month in the psychiatric unit, uh, University Hospital in Iowa City, mm -hmm. and I was um, what they would call an affective flatliner, meaning I had zero capacity to register emotion, I was just in a walking coma, so to speak, for mm. about a month. So it hit me really hard. And this is both because of <clears throat> the stress of the disease and also the side effects of the drugs, I suppose. Yeah, all of the above. The, right. the drugs, the fear. Right, just everything you've been through. Yeah, it was just, you know, it really came to a head. I had a breakdown. I had a major depressive episode mm -hmm. in 98. But and my wife pulled me through that. And oh, I didn't doctors. know you were meditated. Uh, you were <laughs> married that. Um, yeah. Yeah. At that point. Yeah. When did you get married? Well, that's the thing, Rick. We always go by the day we met uh -huh. because that's the day our lives changed. Right. So we met in 93. Oh, good. And, you yeah. know, so she, she definitely pulled me through. Yeah. She's a very strong, wonderful person. Mm -hmm. Flash forward to uh, a couple years, two or three years later, I was having some kind of a surgery. Mm -hmm. Now, I happen to uh, have an allergy to general anesthetics. Uh -huh. If you give me the wrong anesthetic, I won't wake up. Mm -hmm. So uh, my body tends to interpret anesthetic agents differently than most people. So 
What happened to me in this, in this surgery was I seemed to be alert and talking all the way through the surgery. Even though you're supposed to be unconscious Well, they, yeah, they gave me enough to knock me out, but it didn't knock me all the way out. Uh -huh. I was talking. They felt that I was just comfortable. And right. I wasn't experiencing anything. And then in the recovery room... You mean you didn't know you were talking? That's right. They told you afterwards? Which, if you, if you think about it, that right there tells you that... I mean, I was making sense, apparently. Uh -huh. Uh, you can do just fine without memory or actual experience, you know. But then in the recovery room, I sort of woke up, just in the typical meaning of the word. Coming out of your Yes, I just woke up, and the most amazing uh, sequence happened, uh -huh. which was that I suddenly felt like, oh, I'm back. Mm -hmm. And I could see that there's me, there's the world, and I'm talking, I'm in the middle of a point. Mm -hmm. And then there was this, this sadness, like, oh, now, I'm, now I have to make sense. You know, now I have to be responsible and not look like a fool. So I better figure out what I'm saying. Now the burden is on me to not look foolish, uh -huh. since I'm back. For some reason, uh, right before jumping back in and taking the reins and being responsible, I said, where was I before? Mm. And, and metaphorically, so to speak, I, you know, whipped my head around somehow and looked back. Mm. And I, I won't tell you that I saw anything at that time, I didn't. But I did realize that, th that the world, including me, had come out of nothing. And it was just as, as obvious as could be. Mm. Um, now, let me go ahead and show something on this diagram. Sure. In terms of this diagram, I would say that, can I point with my yeah, finger? Yeah, okay. you can point, but people probably aren't going to be seeing you pointing, so you have to explain what you're pointing at. I believe what happened was that I noticed when the world kicked back in. Mm -hmm. Now, I didn't really notice where I had been before that, but I noticed that the world and my personality, uh, along with it, kicked back in. Which is represented by the big arrow on the right above the little Buddha guy, right? Yeah. So that was a major shock because uh, the way I described it to my friend is mm -hmm. that I had seen the imposter take the stage. Uh -huh. That's the way it struck me. Right. I had seen that this, this is a lie. This is not real. Yeah. And it was quite an obvious thing. Right. I later came to think of that as the, the second law of self-knowledge, which is simply that the world isn't. The world is not real. The world lacks existence. The uh -huh. world doesn't exist. It's interesting, you're one of three people I can think of that came out of a near-death surgery type experience <laughs> and had a spiritual awakening upon coming out that, that more or less changed their whole perspective once and for all. So I didn't mean to interrupt your flow oh, of thought, okay. but it, it happens, you know. First law again, <coughs> self-experience directly. Second law... Well, those are... are oh, those are, are different. Yeah. I'm sorry. Shankara, uh -huh. uh, 1,200 years ago, his second law, and I will come back to his first law, but his second law is that the world is not real. Mm -hmm. And what I experience is the world lacks existence. You might see it. Right. It might be, for functional purposes, real. Mm -hmm. And yet it lacks that crucial attribute of existence. It simply doesn't exist. Yeah. At least not in any ultimate sense. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, it appears real enough. Yes. If I punch you in the nose, you feel it, but on some level, nothing's happening. It lacks the true commodity. Right. It's, it, does, you know, it may have reality, and yet it lacks existence. Hmm. 
Um, and, you know, just as obvious as, as could be, all the things that I noticed over the years came in the midst of, of some kind of action. Uh, none of them happened in quiet meditation. Right. There, there seemed, at least in my case, to be some value of contrast. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, to, you know, to see the white spot on the blackboard mm -hmm. or the black spot on the whiteboard. Or, right. That's the first part of my experience in that. As you're coming out of your surgery, out of your anesthesia, you had this realization that the world lacks existence. Was it just sort of like the type of experience we might have when we're waking up from sleep and we remember a dream and we maybe have an insight, but then when we get back into the nitty-gritty of our day, we forget all that. It's just mm -hmm. a memory. So, I mean, did the concreteness and reality of the world somehow impinge upon you again and make you forget that, oh, yeah. that subtle insight you had had? Yes. Uh -huh, okay. Yeah. But that's a really good example about sleep because I think uh, this cycle, this diagram, one, one thing that's been useful to me is that it's, it seems to be exactly the same pattern which, which works at different scales. It works yeah. at this sort of, you know, grand scale of seeking. It works at the scale of the daily cycle where we talk about sleeping and dreaming. Mm -hmm. and, and later, you know, I, I'm going to suggest that it works at the scale of one individual thought. Mm. So this is halfway. This is halfway to a glimpse of self. Mm -hmm. Because what I had done is I had glimpsed that the world isn't. But I hadn't glimpsed that which is. Mm. So now you can check with my wife on this one. I was absolutely obsessed by that for whatever it was, three, four, five years. That experience you had had. Yeah, yeah. because it was crystal clear. Yeah. On Mother's Day of 2005, mm -hmm. the other shoe dropped. Mm. And I saw that which is real. It was a busy day. We were in our house, and I was in the kitchen washing dishes and looking out the window. Mm -hmm. And I quite suddenly became aware that I was not looking at, you know, the yard and the sky. Rather, I was actually looking at solid existence, mm -hmm. that that's what can be seen. Mm -hmm. You know, you can only see what's really there, right. and something that's not there, you, you can't see it. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I could still perceive the yard and the sky, but it was, it was uh, absolutely clear that they collectively, as a, as a single unit, lacked existence. Mm. And more importantly, that there was, uh, there was existence per se. There was this abstract commodity of existence, the most abstract thing, which was present in its most infinitely condensed form. Extremely dense. Everywhere. Yeah, just, yeah. you know, that, and it was, it took maybe a second, but, you know, when you see something that solid, that real, there was no negotiating with, with mm. that experience. Would it be fair to say as an, an example that Let's say you had a lot of a bunch of clay, and you took the, and you were a good sculptor, and you took that clay and you made a little scene out of it with people and trees and cars and houses and dogs and, and all kinds of things. And you looked at it, you'd see all those things you had made, but at the same time you'd see it's all clay. I'm see all I'm really seeing here is a bunch of clay. Was it sort of like that in which you you were looking at the yard and the trees and everything out the window, but but you were really seeing kind of the essential constituent of which everything is made? Not exactly, okay. although that's what I thought it would be like. Uh -huh. Well, like right now, I'm looking at this room, I feel that it has a depth to it, but I suddenly came to feel that, no, this is just projected on the side mm. of a screen made out of diamond, you know, of a screen which is truly solid, mm -hmm. uh, compared to which nothing you can project on to it is at all solid. It wasn't that the shapes 
were made out of this substance. I think that's actually yet to come. Ah. I think that would be Shankar's third statement. Okay. But for now, it was a complete denial of uh, all the shape. Hmm. They're still perceived, yet um, they lacked any kind of substantial reality. They lacked existence. But you said you felt like you were seeing or sensing existence itself. Yes. Yeah. And the shapes were sort of secondary or something. Yeah, the that's forms. it. Yeah. They were, you could say, flat right. up against something that's mm -hmm. finally real. Yeah. It lasted for a couple hours. And it wasn't uh, the kind of thing where you, you know, start laughing hysterically right. or grab people and shake. Nothing. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was serving tea and there was three mothers, three grandmothers and about ten kids. And wow. I was the only male. So I was, you know, a very busy guy that right. day. And I just carried on with my duties, mm -hmm. and at the end of the day, I told my wife that, you know, something nice had happened. Mm. It was and is the basic core experience of actually um, recognizing a, a glimpse of that which is real. Mm -hmm. And so it was, uh, it was certainly that. What uh, Shankara said, his first law of self-knowledge, he didn't call it law of self-knowledge, but I'm calling it that, right. is that Brahman is real. Mm -hmm. The way I put it uh, when I wrote in my journal that day is that the self is. Right. You know, so until then all I had is that world isn't, and now I had self is. Uh -huh. And these two things were very different. Yeah. And to me they're still very different. Mm -hmm. So self is, truly is, and, and the world isn't. That's clear as can be, right? I'm yeah, sure. no, it's, it makes sense to me. And uh, so, and these experiences were about five years apart from one another or something. Something like that. And that was about five years ago yeah. that you had experience. Are these just pleasant memories or did somehow having had these two experiences shift your perspective on things? Definitely shifted, yeah. shifted things uh, a lot. You know, it's kind of like a, a guy who wakes up from a dream and actually sees his bedroom around him right. and then goes back to sleep mm -hmm. and now he's trying to convince his dream buddies that they're <laughs> not real, the dream landscape isn't real, yeah. he's seen the real, you know, yeah. and his buddies are saying either you're, you're wrong, mm -hmm. which you probably are, or you're right and if that's true, why would you waste your time, time trying to convince us, you know, yeah. so it's kind of a lose-lose uh, mm -hmm. situation. But yes, it restructured, it restructured me, and I, became, I began my obsession with solidness hmm. as a measure of reality. This is something very, very powerful and very specific, that what the self is, is that it's solidness, mm -hmm. it's density, mm. it's, it's dense existence per se. Mm -hmm. And this is, by the way, uh, also Ramana Maharshi's favorite way of describing the self. Mm is that it's, an, it's a dense mass of self-knowledge hmm. or of existence. I have been basically a Ramana student or scholar for the last 10 or 15 years. Just mm -hmm. I've, I've, I've identified my 10 favorite books by him and about him, which uh, I read over and over and over and just... Right. So uh, a Ramana has been a, you know, just a wonderful just a, just a wonderful person to study for me. And this is his favorite way of describing the self, mm -hmm. is in terms of its solidness. I have been, uh, I would have to say, fairly fanatical about this, this angle that truth, reality, being, existence, self, is 
exactly equal to solidness. Mm -hmm. And so now an interesting question is, if solidness is the measure of reality, what does it mean to be solid? You know, we, we can start with physical objects, right. and they appear to be solid, but the scientists say they're not. Right. There's this quest for solidness. And one thing that I, that I noticed uh, over the last five years is that the memory of uh, anything in the world is different from that thing itself. You know, the, the memory of this pen is different from this pen. Right. But the memory of the self is identical to the self itself, only in the case of the self. There's about three thoughts in my head that I want to pursue here with you. First of all, we won't lose the track of this conversation, but you don't seem depressed anymore. I mean, you were on the verge of... Well, I'm on Zoloft for one thing. Oh, okay. <laughs> but you're on, the, you're on the verge of... Is that what did it? I mean, you were on the verge of suicide 10 years ago, and you are deeply depressed, and now you're not. Is that Zoloft, or is, is there some kind of more spiritual uh, uh, reason I'm, for this? I'm not going to credit uh, spirituality with any improvement in my personality. Mm -hmm. um, and my nature still is to be depressed. For one thing, I, you know, I scare myself by looking so hard into these things. You know, I just look so hard with such intensity that I scare myself. And, hmm. and my wife saves me like... I think Eckhart Tolle would say, would say who is this <laughs> self you're scaring? Well, sure. And, and I would respect that language. Different. Like when he said, you know, I can't live with myself, and then he had the thought, wait a minute, if I can't live with myself, there must be two of me. So who is this self I cannot live with, you know? And then he woke up the next morning enlightened. <laughs> I, can, I, I appreciate that. Yeah. Yet for me, it seems to be, instead of one big cycle, mm -hmm. like a career of seeking, right. it's, there seems to be this shorter cycle. Right. And there are, there are places, well, uh, I'm gonna hold this graphic up again. Mm -hmm. There is a, a small circle towards the bottom on the seeking side, the left side, little green circle, uh -huh. before passing the self and, mm -hmm. and getting a glimpse of the self, which is the experience of the void. Mm -hmm. This is the experience when seeking is, has been done and has uh, come to its fruition, which is that seeking is now seen to be invalid. You mm -hmm. know, we have seeked our way out of seeking. Right. <laughs> so there is the void experience. And but what happens to me is that I pass that point many times a day. So you go through little mini cycles. Yeah, I get depressed about a thousand times a day, huh, you know, but then I get out of it, or my wife pulls me out of it, or the yeah. world pulls me out of it. Different people proceed in different ways, and you, you might just be processing little chunks of this as you go along. Maybe I'm a rapid cycling bipolar, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's probably happening on multiple scales, but that, that's what I notice, is that um, depression comes and goes. Yeah. You know, one thing I think that's definitely in your favor is that you're very honest. You don't seem to be trying to convince yourself of anything other than what you're actually experiencing. Yeah. And uh, I think that's a real asset for somebody who's seeking truth. People can psych themselves into all sorts of states, yeah. you know. This is one of the great things about having a glimpse of the self is that huge you know, shiploads of affectation and mood making mm -hmm. are now not needed. Right. You know, I mean, it, it just doesn't matter. Uh, and I'm not even saying I'm, I'm above mood making. You right. know, I'll, I'll do it like anyone else. But there's just no connection between actually seeing something real and then my relative personality, which is just like it always was. Mm -hmm. um, it has not been benefited in any way. Hmm. I couldn't say that. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm 
still a schmuck in many ways, but um, I think more so, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I d maybe it's just simple maturation, which would be taking place anyway as we age. But yeah. boy, you know, when I look back at the way I was young before I learned to meditate, before I got on this whole spiritual path, and you know, just the how radically I changed within the first couple of years after embarking on that. And then maybe the changes haven't been con so contrasting ever since, but still at any time I can sort of see a, a steady evolution. You know, I can think back to five years ago and I cringe to think of, you know, what I might have said or done then. And I don't seem to be so inclined to say or do that now. You know, there seems to be some kind of impact of all this. And I, I should hope so. I mean, that, that, that's a whole other discussion and it's something that I've pondered yeah. a lot myself is that how tight is the correlation between spiritual development and such things as ethics and you know. I mean if if what you find out about the illusion is that it doesn't exist mm -hmm. then that kind of cuts the legs off I mean I'm speaking for me at least now right. Rick is that for me that you know that cuts the legs off in other words something which doesn't exist mm -hmm. can't really be said to benefit from something which does exist yeah, but you know, remember Carlos Castaneda had this little exercise that he was given by Don Juan to try to see his hands in his dream. Right. And, I tried know, that for years. I, I did it, actually, <laughs> after I'd read those books. But, you know, the implication, well, I don't know what the implication was, but it, it's an analogy for, you know, actually being able to, to change, the, the, that, uh, change the dream. Oh, and, don't um, get me started. Yeah. I, I hate the secret uh -huh. about changing the dream. Right, right. Because that will keep you interested in the dream. Yeah, but on the other hand, the attitude that you have no control over the dream can lead to cop-out situations in which you excuse all kinds of inappropriate behavior as being totally beyond my control. I mean, you know, I don't have any decisions to make here. You know, I'm just got, it's just all on, on automatic and there's no doer and, you know, no decision maker and therefore, pardon me while I pick your pocket, you know. Well, uh, let's save that, that, that debate for, maybe there'll be a part two. Sometime. Oh, sure, anytime. Let I want to get back to solidness. You want to talk more yes, about solidness? Yes, well, so solidness was so obvious to me, it's all I can say, that solidness is the same as existence, it's the same as self, it's the same as reality, mm -hmm. that true final solidness is that. Mm -hmm. This is why I would say that the New Age approach, now, Forgive me if I lump some things together and generalize, but the New Age approach, including, including lots of things, tends to go, in my opinion, only halfway to the original mes message of Shankara. Don't let me lose that, uh, sure. Rick. I should tell you, I was actually released from MIU faculty mm -hmm. because, uh, because of this. Thinking too much outside the box. Because of this, but. I was released in a similar way. What it was is that I was researching what Shankara said mm -hmm. and trying to compare and see how much of what Shankara had said was evident in the curriculum on campus. Obviously, what Shankara said had a lot to do with this sort of ultimate truth, mm -hmm. self, whatever. And yet what we find a lot these days is has to do with consciousness. And consciousness is usually conceived of as something, you know, I'm generalizing, but light, energetic, positive, uh, blissful. blissful, very thin and viscous and fluid, mm. lively, it's life, mm -hmm. you know, it's mind, it's, and these are, these are all the things that I saw don't exist. Mm. Contrast that to, you know, deep, dark, 
density, which is infinitely solid, which is not lively, which mm. never moves, which never takes shape, which never does anything, which has no liveliness to it. What I'm getting at is that, in my opinion, uh, the so-called New Age uh, message takes us only halfway mm. back mm. to what Shankara was telling us. My brother, he's a uh, uh, born-again Christian, and I have a lot of respect for my, my brother's views. We've had a lot of good discussions, and I'm hoping my brother will watch at least part of this interview. Well, he's in California, but uh, my brother... Skype working one of these days. My brother, Tony, uh, he asked me, he said, you know, Mike, you, you got into your, your meditation and so on, and now you're out of it. So what I see is that you stepped into something and then you step back out. Mm -hmm. I said, no, Tony, I stepped into something and then I decided that that didn't go far enough. So I continued in the same direction and I took one more step. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm trying to say here is that there is one more step which uh, we usually don't get to in, in a lot of the things that we read and hear and talk about these days. It's that step which is not that you can change the dream or you know the fluidity of consciousness or you can improve. You know I don't want to improve the dream, I, I want to wake up. So yeah. there's part two, mm -hmm. so to speak. My personal orientation is maybe I'm more elementary in my with this, but I definitely want to wake up to whatever extent I can wake up fully if possible, but at the same time I'd rather have a good dream than a bad dream. I not mean, me. if I hit my thumb with a hammer, I prefer that much less to not having hit my thumb with a hammer. But if you hit your thumb with a hammer, let's talk about a dream where you experience that kind of pain. You're likely to wake up. Whereas if instead of hitting your thumb with a hammer, you, in your dream you have ambrosia and mm. bliss, you're not as likely to wake up. That's a good point. Now you have a point there. Yeah, I really sort of feel like the universe is structured for our maximum evolution and that doesn't mean well, all, now it's my turn. All, all butterflies and well and, now it's know. my turn what universe you know all if right, you can right. say who or who's the one you know well, don't you feel there's some kind of intelligence <laughs> going on here no really no neither on the side of the self mm -hmm. nor on the side of the non-self hmm. who needs it all right well, we have we have a few points to unpack here i don't want to lose this the okay the uh we'll come back to this one i don't want to lose the solidness thing okay uh, but well I, but i definitely want to come back to the intelligence thing okay um, <laughs> in terms of solidness i i like that term and i like the your use of it and the fact yeah. that you use it and i've had some really solid experiences myself at, at times it makes the most sense to me by considering that that which is real, being, or whatever you wish to call it, isn't particulate. You know, it, it doesn't right. it doesn't sort of oh, exist yeah, yeah. it doesn't exist in greater concentration here than here. Yeah. It's not made up of pieces. It's universally right. It's universally omnipresent, all pervading, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And there's this solid mass that is this formlessness. Yeah. It doesn't have sort of more dense areas and more no, no, what appears to be dense is actually, on that level, no more dense than what appears to be spacious. Yes, and, and all of the above, spaciousness, apparent density, totally doesn't exist. There's this little poem that I wrote that I, I like a lot, let's see if I can remember, it says something like, Standing on my own shoulders, I see the vast terrain I have created. Boundless, endless, fathomless, is the sheer extent to which I exist, and this world does not. Right now I'm getting 
goosebumps, you know, because this is this is my bliss, either by picking up not only that self exists, but to what depth upon depth it does exist, and not only that uh, the world doesn't exist, but to what far extreme it doesn't exist, hmm. and therefore between the two, how absolutely unconnected they are. In my experience, paradox is very important. And what I mean by that is that I can be, let's say, at a concert, really enjoying it, with no thought on the level of the concert that it doesn't exist. Why would I go if it didn't exist? I, I paid my money, I went to the concert, I'm enjoying it. At the same time, as I'm watching that concert, it's very clear to me that nothing is happening. Yeah. You know, that it doesn't exist, as you say. Yeah. Uh, that, that it's just, we could use the term silence, but that there's a, a level both, you know, within me and within everything, uh, which, you know, there's no demarcation between those two things, that nothing is happening. But I tend to render under Caesar what is Caesar's, to, to give credence to the level of a concert as well as to the level that nothing sure. is happening. I mean, you say you love your wife, I'm yeah. sure you do, you don't, it's not predominant in your experience, nor would you ever want it to be, that she doesn't exist. She doesn't exist. <laughs> no, but you love her. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, why should that mess things up? Just the mere fact that she doesn't exist, you know. I mean, it's a technicality. She definitely does not exist. But so what? Well, a very handy phrase that Margie used to use is that knowledge is different in different states of consciousness. Or sometimes yeah. he said reality is different in different states of consciousness. Yeah. And he would give talks in which he said just what you're saying, that nothing exists, that nothing ever happened, and so on and so forth. And then the next breath, he'd be talking about all kinds yeah. of levels of... And then, and as you said, honesty. You know, I, I prefer to assume that everyone is honestly describing their experience. Mm -hmm as they move through different points of the cycle. And all you can really do is describe. Even if you're prescribing, really all you're doing is describing what seems true to you at that point. So, speaking for myself, I seem to move through the different points on the cycle. Each one demands its own language. Mm -hmm. but here it's obvious that you and I are not one and the same. Mm -hmm. Here it's obvious that we are. Mm -hmm. Here it's obvious that we don't exist. So each region of the cycle demands its own dialect. And yet, as I move through them experientially, all I'm doing is trying to honestly describe what is obvious to me at that point. But wouldn't it be fair to say, you're not moving into the less real and the more real as you move around this cycle, but that in the larger context, all those points on the cycle are contained within a greater wholeness and are harmonized or subsumed or they exist perfectly well despite the, the paradoxical, the, the paradox between well, I, them. I'll tell you what Shankara, one thing he about said that? about that. He said that, first the way I, I like to put it, Rick, is that even on that floating island, which is the mirage, mm -hmm. the laws of nature, you know, it's tempting to think that, all right, at least there's consistent laws within the mirage. There are not. The, the laws of nature are not even consistent within the boundaries of the mirage. And this is what Shankara said, that the world is in constant change and there are no laws governing that change. There is no such thing. You can't expect consistent laws within the boundaries of that which doesn't exist. Seem pretty consistent to me. I mean, <laughs> sure. we could sit here for the next 10 years dropping this pen 
And every time I do that, it's going to drop. Now, there's a, you know, physicists will tell us that there is an infinitesimally small but nonetheless real possibility that when I let go of this, it's going to go up instead of down. But there are pretty well understood laws that explain why it goes down instead of up. I, you know, I would beg to differ on that. Aren't there? I mean, if you're sitting here with a physicist... Well, yeah, and he'd be t speaking his language. Yeah. And, you know, we're all, again, we're all being honest, so it's hard, it's hard to find fault, mm -hmm. uh, at least from my point of view, assuming that each person is honestly describing what he sees in front of him. You know, when I was dreaming last night, and I was taking a shower, and suddenly there was an elephant in the shower, mm -hmm. what I had, all right, the shape was, there's an elephant in the shower. Right. But the feeling was, yeah, this works. You know? yeah. <laughs> so, you know, what's deeper than the shape mm -hmm. is the feeling. And the feeling that there's consistency in this physical world is perhaps more temptingly consistent than the activity itself. In other words, if I was going to admit to anything, I'd admit that there's a consistent feeling that things are always making sense. And yet, so what? Yeah, wasn't it Lao Tzu who said something like he, he dreamed he was a butterfly and now he doesn't know whether he's, he's a man who dreamed he was a butterfly or a butterfly who was dreaming yeah. he was a man? <laughs> uh, you know, I just love that thing that Chakra said. That was so helpful to me when I, I came across that, mm -hmm. that basically within the illusion there, there are no laws governing change. You just can't expect consistency within something that doesn't exist. But, you know, that's, again, that's a debate for the top half of the diagram. Because, I mean, you know, Sir Isaac Newton and Albert Einstein and some other pretty smart guys would might well, sure. beg to differ with and you. And I was a, a chemist and a physicist in my undergrad days, too. And so, you know, it's very fascinating. Uh, huh. I love that stuff. Just to sort of finish the, uh, the life story part of the okay. thing here. Um, we'll get back to intelligence a little bit later, <laughs> Okay. Too. So where I'm at... Uh, now, after five years of, you know, obsession with mm -hmm. solidness, is that I feel that I'm, I'm beginning to, let's say, get over this glimpse of self. Now, I'm not denying, there, there can be no denying, you know, the, my mind can't judge that. Part of what that did is that it showed that there's no mind. But I'm starting to fill in the gap, and Chakra put it beautifully. His third law, so let, let's review, you know, he mm -hmm. said the first law was, that Brahman is real. The second law is that the world is not real. Mm -hmm. Now Shankara's third law, what I think of as the third part of his Mahabhakya, is that Brahman is the world. Mm. This is so amazing. You know, what came to me out of necessity over the years, what I had to come up with to make sense, was that I, for me at least, I inserted a little optional phrase before that, which it, now I'll tell you the whole thing that because the world isn't, self and world are identical. Only having rejected the existence of the world, only having seen that it's not real enough to have earned its own category, mm -hmm. it's not in competition mm -hmm. with the self, only because it's been completely denied, now I see that there's nothing but self. Mm -hmm. I see it at least logically. <clears throat> and working backwards from that point, I see there's this gradual filling in of the gap. Finally, what you s proposed earlier, that there, you know, um, if all there is is reality, why, why should we continue to call parts of our world or our world per se unreal? So I think that is the, you know, the third, the third piece, and that's what I'm working on. Some people like to say, the word Brahman, by the way, means great. It's from a Sanskrit word meaning great, and, and it sometimes 
defined as wholeness or, or in this case a self the self and uh, <coughs> you know some people like to say well this is Brahman showing up as a pen this is Brahman showing up as Michael this is Brahman showing up as a table and so on and so forth this is what this is what Brahman looks like now you know I don't know yeah. it's sometimes some people find that as a helpful memnonic or something I'm working on that you know I try not to uh, I try not to manufacture experiences so it, I've never before could I honestly you know look at one of these objects in the world and say oh yeah this is the self right um, the most I could do would be to say I've seen the self mm -hmm. and this ain't it because the world is Brahman yes Brahman and it's only Brahman because it doesn't exist we can't get to the world is Brahman without passing through the world doesn't exist you have to pass through that first mm -hmm. so that that's kind of where I'm at yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm kind of reminded of a story of Shankar, which I'm sure you're familiar with, where he was going to visit some king or something, and the, the king wanted to test to see whether he was really all he was cracked up to be. So as he was approaching the, the, the palace, the, the king had a wild elephant released, and it started charging toward Shankar, and Shankar promptly scampered up a tree. And the king said, ha, you know, if you're so enlightened, why'd you climb the tree? And he said, the illusory elephant chased the illusory me up the illusory tree. <laughs> sure. <laughs> you know, which, which kind of says that you can say the world isn't real and so on, but you behave completely as though it were. Yes, your shape either, either that or you get squashed. This shape is still fearful. Uh, you know, this personality has mm -hmm. not really changed. I may be wrong, and I, you know, I'm no guru or expert or master or anything else, or I'm really a seeker like yourself, but I have a feeling that you may eventually give the reality of the world more credence than you do now. I think this may be a phase. and that, that That's what I'm agreeing with you. Are you? Yeah. Right. But Why don't you extend the thought? Well, then? as I said it a minute ago, but I think I, I want to earn that. I can't honestly say that the world is real uh -huh. until I have paid some dues. I see. And the first dues is I have to see what reality is. Mm -hmm. and, this, and the second two is I have to see that this world does not meet that criteria. Right. Now take that to its extreme. This world so, so wholeheartedly fails to meet the criteria of reality mm -hmm. that there's no second thing there's self, there's reality, and there's no second thing which right. we can call unreality. Mm -hmm. So if there's no second thing, then everything is, is real. But I have to get there honestly. You yeah. Know? So you're just kind of squeezing every drop of you know, gumption that, that you can out of each stage that you're going through. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. You know, I'm, what can I say? Yeah. Sort of obsessive in that way. Oh, I'm obsessive too. If I had to choose one adjective about myself, it would be that, I think. And I, I suppose we're, maybe we're, what we're learning how to do is turn uh, obsessiveness to our advantage. And I hope. I hope <laughs> it's possible. I wanted to get back to the, the theme of intelligence and, and kind of segue it into this conversation. Uh, because, you know, you made comments about there being no laws governing the universe and, and things like that. And you have more scientific background than I do, but whenever I look at, you know, NOVA program or, you know, one of these nature shows or, or something where it's showing the, the vastness of the universe or the, the complexity of the cell, you know, how a cell functions or how an, a fetus grows, you know, and, and so many things, anything you look at, it's like your jaw drops with, with awe at the vast intelligence that, that is functioning in every minute particle 
of creation. And you can say that creation never happened and, and nothing exists and all. Fine, you know, maybe there's no ultimate reality to all this, but insofar as it appears to exist as a play, as right. a display, it's extraordinarily, infinitely, incomprehensibly creative and intricate and marvelous. I mean, you know, human, man, for all of his intelligence, couldn't create a housefly. I mean, we can create some pretty cool machines that do some pretty cool stuff, but if we had to create a housefly that was as small, it could do and see and, and f everything a housefly does and function as it does and reproduce itself and all that stuff, you know, we'd never do it. And if you analyze the housefly, you know, look at the way its eye is structured, for instance, or its digestive tract or anything else, there's like this amazing creativity to it. And that, to me, you know, hints at God. I mean, it hints at, at there being some, some divine intelligence who is maybe entertaining himself, and, you know, maybe the whole thing is, is just a play which has no ultimate reality, but there, there's something going on, you know, that, that deserves tremendous respect and scrutiny and, and deserves understanding if we're, really, if we're really seeking ultimate truth, I think. I don't know what to say. It's beautiful the way you put it. And I'm capable of admiring such things myself. But I'm going to try to say this, you know, in a different way. Okay. It's like no higher number law of self-knowledge can ever change a lower number law of self-knowledge. Mm, and what do you mean by higher number, lower number? Well, there's there's the first law, second law, third law. Mm -hmm. So in my, uh, that day, Mother's Day of 05, when I, you know, had this a glimpse of self, I ran downstairs and wrote in my journal, mm -hmm. and I wrote, self is, world isn't, and then I had something else which wasn't fully developed, so mm -hmm. I won't go into that. Now, what did Chakra say? He said, Brahman is real, world is not real, Brahman is the world. Mm -hmm. If you start with Brahman is the world, it doesn't change the lower numbered law number two, which says that the world doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't change law number one, which says that Brahman does exist. Mm -hmm. That can never change for me. I, I don't right. think it can ever change th that insight that uh, self infinitely does exist and world infinitely does not exist. Mm -hmm. Now, without changing, now I can embrace the third one, that self and world are actually the same, because right. there's no two things here. There's not two things here. I will never believe that this world exists. No matter how far I get into embracing Shankara's third law, I will never forget that this world does not exist. Well, I can't deny anybody's experience or anybody's belief, but I wouldn't necessarily place a lot of money on this. <laughs> <laughs> All right. How much you want to bet? I, I'm not a betting man. <laughs> There's a reason that never say never is, is a kind of a catchphrase in, you know, these days. But I've been okay. proven wrong you know, many times. One of my little rules of backstroke dynamics is mm -hmm. that, you know, I'd rather make a type 2 error than a type 1 error. Type 1 error is you never make a claim that turns out to be unsubstantiated. Uh -huh. Type 2 error is that you fail to make a claim that, that was actually True. Uh -huh. And I would, or in my language, you know, I'd rather be too bold than, than too afraid. You know, so mm -hmm. I would rather err on the side of having, having made this kind of a statement. It again comes down to knowledge is different in different states of consciousness, I think. And because there is a level on which, not the ultimate level, but there is a level on which the world 
does exist and is real for people. And you can say that, fine, they're somewhat deluded to the extent they think it's real, because ultimately it isn't. If the world is Brahman, then there's all kinds of cool stuff happening or appearing to happen within Brahman. And there's all sorts of intricate, fascinating dramas going on and laws of nature and, and all kinds of interesting stuff that Brahman has somehow managed to contain within itself. I think my problem is that, you know, I'm a, I'm a natural-born contrarian. Mm -hmm. If you tell me a movie's great, there's no way I'm going to enjoy it. Did you see Avatar? I haven't seen it yet. Oh, it's great. Don't tell me that. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, when I first came to uh, MIU in the 70s, you're right, there's that logo, that tree, right. and it says knowledge is structured in consciousness. Right. And I'm no graphic artist, but I read it, redid it to say, confusion on a higher plane. <laughs> I mean, huh. what can I say? I'm just, I'm just a troublemaker. That's okay. Uh, me too. This is kind of my last okay, scripted... But let, let me say something before I lose it, because it's kind yeah. of subtle here. I think being a contrarian is a perfectly valid path, you know, the netty-netty sort of approach. But it may be that for you, a stage will dawn in which being whatever the opposite of contrarian is will be useful, all-inclusive. Because that's what Brahman is said to be, and if you want to realize yourself as Brahman, it might be useful to be completely inclusive, rather than the attitude, not this, not this, the attitude, this too, this too. If I get to that point, it's going to be kicking and screaming. For me, yeah. then it will have passed all my tests. That'll be something that I'll proudly embrace. But from my side, I will resist it. Why? Because, as you said, I want to squeeze Every the truth. You yeah. know, I want to take each step and own it. But doesn't resistance, by definition, impede progress? Oh, well, some progress should be impeded. It's true. I mean, you know, uh, I was the worst mood maker when I was uh, finishing my teacher training course. To become a TM teacher? Uh, no, no, I'm just making a, a joke here. Uh -huh. But, you know, uh, we were all allowed to pick off a list, you know, one affectation. We could really <laughs> say, like that, like that, right. or, or we could do something yeah. with our hands. Well, I just took them all. You know. <laughs> So you're kind of rooting out that history and... Maybe, yeah. maybe it's like the Sterling days, you know, yeah. something that I'm trying to... Yeah, I didn't go through that, but I saw guys sitting around smoking cigars and riding through town on motorcycles. Yeah, almost stuff. killed us. The, the last thing I had, you know, prepared to talk about was what I call the life cycle of a thought mm -hmm. and the three keys to know thyself. Okay. Well, we talked about the three laws of, of self-knowledge. Mm -hmm. So these are the three keys to know thyself. So now I'm going to hold up the second graphic, Alrighty. which you'll see is that this is the same original graphic, mm -hmm. but now it is specifically in terms of a very small scale. The cycle has taken on the size of one single thought. I see. And so mm -hmm. it shows, for me, is something very useful, the life cycle of a thought, how mm -hmm. a thought gets started, comes out of nowhere, it flourishes and <clears throat> projects itself as the world around us. And then uh, there's this impulse to seek its origin, and we seek, and at some point seeking disappears too, the thought disappears, and then there is no experience, but there is a transit very close to the self. Mm. Now, after passing the self, it's possible to retroactively have what we call an experience of the self. Mm. So there's a difference between the, the, actually the self and, and an experience of the self. 
So are you suggesting that every thought goes through this cycle? Yes. Or that some thoughts just sort of dissipate? I would propose that all thoughts go through this cycle. In every person? Yes, mm -hmm. in general. And it's not so hard to picture because we can simplify it. We can say that just as at the heart of every red blood cell there's a fast vibrating atom of iron mm -hmm. in, in hemoglobin, right. every molecule of hemoglobin. Illusory. Uh, uh, illusory. Just as we can say that every molecule of red blood has this atom of iron vibrating at its core, just like that, every thought we have has the feeling of ionus vibrating cool. at its core. We've just talked about thoughts in a generic way, you know, imagination thoughts, uh, creative thoughts, psychotic thoughts, genius thoughts, all of these thoughts they may be different in the content and their applicability and their so-called relative ranking, but they all function in the same way. They're all extrapolations of this feeling that I'm here. So now we're just talking about the I-thought, that the I-thought sprouts out of nowhere, matures, uh, extrapolates into the world experience, mm -hmm. and, then, and then waxes again, or would it be wanes again? Finally, there's a despairing moment, and then it's gone, and then comes a glimpse of self. Mm. So when you say, I thought, you're referring to the individual I, the sense yes. of individual self. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. And mm. uh, is this something you're saying that happens uh, on a long-term scale, or many times a day, or what? All of the above, Rick. I would say so many different scales, kind of like a fractal, you know, you yeah. keep looking into it, and there it is again. Definitely. Let's take the scale of um, a career of seeking, let's say one lifetime. Mm -hmm. Well, I've been telling you how I've been populating this map mm -hmm. uh, over the years, you know, to help myself understand. So there's that scale. Now here's the scale of the 24-hour uh, day. This is kind of like waking. Mm -hmm. This is kind of like dreaming. This is kind of like sleep. Now here's kind of like lucid dreaming. See, so there's a scale that lasts 24 hours. Now I'm just suggesting that there is a scale which lasts, it's, the, it's on the Planck scale of one thought. Uh -huh. And what is the practicality or significance of this particular understanding? It helps me to put my experiences in the context of something that's happening again and again so that I can feel good about about my odds of experiencing it again. Let me clarify mm -hmm. that. It'll help if I just go ahead and say what I think some of these, what I call the three keys to know thyself. The first key is that the self is solid mm -hmm. and denser than diamond. Mm -hmm. The first key is that self is solid. Now, this is a lot. You know, back when we started with know thyself, uh, it's, it's tempting to go in so many different directions. But if we can just start with know thyself, and take this one step, that self is solid, self is solidness. Solidness is self. They're the same. So that's a big thing, that's the first key. Mm -hmm. And here on the scale of a thought, uh, we pass the very close to the self with every thought. Mm -hmm. As every thought waxes and flourishes and wanes, we then pass very close to the self and we have the, then the opportunity to hopefully experience this solid self. Marshi used to say that there's a gap between thoughts yes. and that the self can be glimpsed in that uh, gap. Absolutely, yeah. and that's, that's, and that's Yeah, it. and that if uh, you know, a more evolved nervous system or whatever didn't have as many thoughts going on all, all the time, yeah. so the gaps were more evident and maybe wider, so to speak. Yeah, 
Well, the second key is that the self can be glimpsed. Mm -hmm. This is saying a lot because it's one thing to talk about a solid self, but so what? You know, but here comes this idea that it can be glimpsed. Right. Now, think about it. If you glimpse something eternal, mm -hmm. doesn't matter how short the glimpse is. Right. It's like saying, if you introduce a pinprick into the side of a balloon, mm -hmm. doesn't matter how big that pinprick is, right. you're gonna bring down that balloon. balloon. Right. That, that illusory shape that's keeping the inside from the outside. Mm -hmm. So the second key is that the self can be glimpsed as often as we have a thought. Mm -hmm. And this is something encouraging mm -hmm. for me because it's not like, I have to wait years, you know, it could right. happen any time. Mm -hmm. And the third key to know thyself is that the self is glimpsed at the very beginning of each thought. Right, if you can just sort of catch it there. Yeah, yeah. and so doesn't this take us all the way back to my first few experiences in the surgery when I glimpsed that the world isn't right. and I tried to turn around? You can only look back and see the self because stepping into the darkness of, of sleep you can't see anything, but stepping out of it, you can. Yeah. So you can only look back to see the self. And that, that's very much what happened with me over a period of years. Same pattern at a different scale. Let me tell you something about my experience that this reminds me of and see if it resonates with you as yeah. well. Maybe you have the same experience. Uh, and I've said this before on this show. What I experienced is that the more contrasting the situation yeah. I'm in, the more obvious uh, the self is to me. And one of my favorites is running through an airport. Because airports are so chaotic, especially <laughs> these days. I mean, air travel is just nuts. And, you know, trying to catch a connecting flight. You're tired, you're, you're racing for your connecting flight, you may or may not make it, you're, you're running along, you're out of breath, your lungs are burning. And, you know, I'm describing an experience that I had last year. Yet, in the midst of all that, the predominant experience is silent. The predominant experience is that, you know, there's just this perfect, stillness, all of this craziness cannot perturb. And it's not only kind of inside in some way, it's in the environment as well. There's chaos in the environment, but at the very same time, there's perfect silence in the environment. And that's my experience. And the more contrasting, and the airports like that are about the craziest places, the, the most contrasting experience I ever run, around, run into in my, the course of my life, um, but it's there also, you know, when I get up in the morning and, and the house is quiet and I'm just walking around doing my morning things. It's just not so obvious. But if I look, if I, if I care to, you know, just check, sure, there it is. And to me, my understanding, that's the self. The, the ultimate state of enlightenment, may, whatever that may be, may be a lot more clear and that, that silence or whatever you want to call it may be a lot more predominant. It's not going to be some totally new element that comes in. Whatever we're, we're going to experience in the, you know, when things are as clear as they can be, we're already experiencing it. Maybe just not as clearly. But it's there. It's identifiable within our experience right now and at every moment. It's got to be. Yeah. If you and I go to the, uh, to the movies, mm -hmm. we see Avatar, mm -hmm. before the movie starts, we're looking at the screen. Right. While the movie's playing, we're looking at the screen. Mm -hmm. and when the movie's over, we're looking at the screen. Exactly. You're, it's got to be a and part. We, we, we get into the movie and we may forget about the screen because we don't care about the screen. We're, we're, we're interested in the movie. That's what we're there for. But if we chose to, in the middle of the movie, we could look and sure enough, well, I see the screen there. Yeah. You know, I think that's a kind of a useful little hint or a li little trick because it sort of 
eliminates the notion that you know self-realization is some kind of far-off alien thing <coughs> that I haven't even begun to experience or realize. It's yeah. it's not far off. It's right here, right now. Very familiar, very intimate, and we're already experiencing it to a great degree of clarity. Cl clarity can increase. I, I used the example last week that you know you maybe you're walking down a road and you see a tree, and you know you you know it's a tree. You don't know what kind of tree or anything else. Maybe it's a little foggy out, but you know it's a tree and not a horse. Is a phrase that Marshy once used. Uh, now some kind of arbologist or something might come along and see the tree and say, oh, that's a such and such, and he'd know the Latin name, and he could tell you, he could lecture for hours all about the tree. You're both seeing the same tree, though. You know, one guy has maybe greater authority, greater clarity about it, but you're both seeing the same tree. And I, I think that there's something in that for us here with regard to this whole idea of knowing the self and knowing enlightenment and, or, and it's like, okay, you had some, some glimpses five years ago, ten years ago, but whatever you had in those glimpses, you're living it. You're living it now. It just may not be as predominant in your awareness as it was when you first had the glimpse, but I don't, I don't think you could lose it. So great to talk about because, you know, it's equally fun to, to agree and to disagree. We could take the point of view that there's no such thing as enlightenment because that means that there's some person who is enlightened. It shouldn't mean that if we really understand the term. It's not something you get. Was Ramana Maharshi enlightened? Was he an enlightened man? Is there such a thing as an enlightened man? Well, you run into semantic problems, you know, because of the nature of what enlightenment is. It's not something that a man gets. It's something, it's, it's the reality. Yeah, the protagonist of the story is the self. Um, it's not the, the man. If we sat here for this, this hour to discussing the color red to, and trying to describe it perhaps to your wife, you know, who, let's pretend that she had never been able to see. Now she kind of probably has a memory of what red is like, but if she had never been able to see, we could talk till we're blue in the face or red in the face, and we would never be able to convey the concept, even though it's such a simple one, and a person who can see knows what red is. So, you know, we're talking about an experiential thing here, and if we're going to talk about it, we need to use words. Otherwise, we could just sit here. <laughs> It'd be very boring. Everybody would turn off the TV. You should do, a, <laughs> you should do an hour like that sometime. Yeah, right. <laughs> See how many hits that gets on YouTube. So we have to use words, but no word can encapsulate any experience, whether it's the taste of a lemon or the color of an apple or, or anything else, but we do our best. And so, I mean, a word like enlightenment is just a pointer and it has connotations and some, maybe it's better not even to use the word because there's so, many, so much baggage around it these days. So we, we try to use words like awakening or self-realization or whatever. I think if we, if we define our words with a little bit of care and attention, we then can at least we can at least fun. still talk. <laughs> right. <laughs> and you know another point, I mean I'm doing too much talking here, but another I think a real critical issue is the whole issue of doubt. You know on the one hand you don't want to be kind of all cocksure and talk yourself into something that you're not having. And it's good that experiences can withstand the test of skepticism and scrutiny and questioning. But on the, on the other hand, the mind has, is a very habitual machine and it can get into habit patterns of doubting and questioning. And it can actually, I think, undermine our ability to have this experience that we're talking about, to grasp it. 
you know, the mind can just keep jumping in and say, now nah, this couldn't be it, now nah, this couldn't be it, uh, you know, I'm waiting for something better. There's one nice side effect, was it just talking about it is kind of enlivening, you know, it feels good. Yeah, absolutely. I always come away from this evening high as a kite. You then know. you can't sleep. And then I go to another thing <laughs> after this, <laughs> or we talk about it for another hour and a half. How do you sleep? I sleep okay. I, I'm a good sleeper. I get up early. Our cat is like an alarm clock. Oh, okay. She won't let me sleep past seven. <laughs> Plus, I know you're quite a yogi. You do a lot of. I do, you my, do a lot I of, do that every yeah. morning. Asanas and, and all. Yeah. And meditate and stuff. Have you ever had the experience of witnessing sleep that's sometimes talked about in, in spiritual circles as being a symptom of, of awakening sporadically here and there? Um, yeah. Yeah. Have you ever had the experience that someone or something wakes you up? Maybe your wife wakes you up because you're snoring, and when she does, you, you say, but I was already awake. It has to be. It doesn't make sense. If you say the alarm clock woke you up, well, how could it wake you up if you weren't there first? Right. <laughs> You know, you had yeah. to be there for it to wake you up, yeah. Even in this outline here, you know, we had to work at it backwards, but mm -hmm. of course the fact has to come first. <clears throat> right. And that's the way it is in the spiritual literature too, like for example in the, um, in the Ramayana, Rama says, mm -hmm. I want to hear the truth. He's mm -hmm. talking to his teacher, Vashishta. I insist on the truth. And he means it. And Vashishta says, I will tell you the truth. But first I have to tell you the half-truth. Uh -huh. You have to. This here started with uh, the second law, which is mm -hmm. the half-truth. There's an analogy Maharishi used to use where a man's standing in the middle of a big mud puddle and he wants to get out. And he says, how do I get out of this mud puddle? And, and you call from the edge of the mud puddle, take a step. He said, but you're asking me to put my foot in the mud again. You know? <laughs> <laughs> right. I said, yeah, but you just take a step, okay. Now take another one, uh -huh. you know, and keep doing that. And at a certain point you're gonna be out of the mud puddle. There are a lot of teachers who sort of de-emphasize or devalue the idea of a, a sequential, <clears throat> incremental path, steps of teaching, stages of consciousness, degrees of awakening, and so on. Maybe for them and for some people that's not necessary or relevant, but I think for a great many people it is. And it's one more way in which I use the, the sense of being inclusive. Like your brother is a fundamentalist Christian, you say. Great. Yeah. It's perfect. Just right for him. Until it isn't. You know, if there's a stage at which is no longer right for him, fine. Maybe he'll have a little trauma and he'll get onto something else, and that'll be just right for him. Just kidding, Tony. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Jesus all the way. What, is there anything we haven't covered? Is there anything we have covered? Right. <laughs> well, undoubtedly, you're going to have some more major awakenings. I mean, I can see it coming. You know, you're going to be doing something or other, cutting the grass, and there's going to be, <laughs> there's gonna be something. So we'll have to have a, a sequel to this at some point. Yeah, if only to take different points of view. Yeah. Next time around, I'll say that the, the world doesn't exist, and you can argue that it does. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we can't figure it out in words. I mean, I know how I feel about my wife. The fact that she doesn't exist doesn't change that. You oh, ever gosh. tell her she doesn't exist? Oh, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Especially she, if she's on your case about something. No, no, she accepts <laughs> hey, it. Hey, you don't exist. <laughs> she accepts it. I have a whole sort of poetic language that, that I use mm -hmm. where she represents the world mm. and, and I represent, you know, the silence. Right. And, well, one small poem in that uh, flavor would be that, you know, every time at this point on the cycle of self-knowledge I ask you, would you rather be everything or actually exist? And as always, 
you chose the former, and I chose the latter. Hmm. She chose to be everything, and you chose to actually exist. Yeah, she's everything, yet she doesn't exist, and I'm nothing, yet I exist. And there's, you know, there's just a beauty for me. There's a beauty in that kind of language. So together you make a oh, complete. Yeah. Jack Spratt could eat no fat, his wife could eat no lean. Hang on. <laughs> Don't say that. Okay. <laughs> you know that poem? Yeah. I do. Well, that's beautiful. Maybe that's a good note to end on. Although, speaking of notes, you mentioned that you wanted to sing a song. Oh, yeah, yeah. Something about Roy Orbison? You know, I'm just as obsessive in my music hobby. Uh -huh. I studied Elvis for 10 years. You have like a PhD in <laughs> My joy is to pick one artist mm -hmm. and really listen closely and to sing along. I like right. to sing along. I'm not even at the level of karaoke because at least in karaoke, there's no other voice, right. you know. So all I'm doing is singing along. But. Mm -hmm. uh, I did uh, that with Elvis for about 10 years, uh, sometimes renting costumes, you know, mm. and really getting wow. into it. You um, must have known Andy Kaufman in his heyday, huh? I did know Andy, yeah. yeah. And then, you know, Dean Martin for a year or two. And, hmm. uh, but for the last maybe three years, it's been all Roy Orbison. And Elvis always said that Roy was the best singer. Roy's kind of the anti-Elvis, or the opposite of Elvis, because Elvis had so many gifts, you know, right. going for him. And all Roy has is the voice. The guy didn't look like much. Right. He didn't move, mm -hmm. you know, didn't move around. Probably wasn't a good guitar player or anything. Oh, he actually was a good was guitar he? player, yeah. but all he really had was the quality right. of his voice. I'm a Beatles man myself. Oh, okay. Yeah. And this is to get us out of our head, right, Rick? I will. There's a place I call Sleepy Hollow Where I go There's a brook running clear in the meadow. I lose my blues in its sound. The wind in the trees in the hollow whispers secrets of life in my ear. When I lay down in their shadows, I dream that you're still here, the bubbling, babbling brook is your laughter. Dream my dream.
So this has been Buddha at the Gas Pump. My guest this week has been Michael Baxter. My name is Rick Archer. Uh, stay tuned for the titles at the end of this show uh, where you'll see links to a blog, uh, podcasts, all kinds of a discussion group, all kinds of interesting things. And uh, I want to recommend another show that's similar to this that I was I've been listening to for the last few days. It's called The Urban Guru Cafe. You can find that on iTunes, and you can also find it on the web, the Ur Urban Guru Cafe. It's produced in Australia. It's interviews like this, interspersed with music, actually. They keep going back and forth between people talking and all kinds of cool cuts of music. But you might enjoy it. Until next week, thank you for watching, and have a good week. <laughs>